Okay, so this morning we are continuing our look at Ruth, and uh, we're in Ruth chapter 3. Two weeks ago we were introduced to the characters of Ruth and Naomi, and both of them were women that had uh, endured really difficult suffering. Uh, They had both lost their their husbands, Uh, they were both uh, widows, and they both decided, made the hard choice to make their way back to Naomi's hometown in Bethlehem. And last week, we looked at the story of how Ruth, a foreign widow from Moab, one of Israel's traditional enemies, met the embrace of God's people, primarily through the kindnesses of a gentleman landowner named Boaz, who was kind to her. And so what we saw was uh, this woman with very little means for herself actually finds something of a life amongst God's people through their kindnesses uh, that were offered to her. So where does that leave us? Not long ago, I saw a young man that I really admire. If you knew him, you would probably admire him too. But he's about to graduate from college, and he threw this, it was really interesting, he threw this post up on Facebook asking for advice, and he asked this question. He said, if there was one or more pieces of advice you could give your 23-year-old self who's about to graduate from college, what would you say to that person? And I just love that. I just thought that was fantastic. And uh, using that platform for something good. Um, and what, what, what came was this assembly of really good advice given uh, to people entering their early career. But it was along the lines of what you would predict. I mean, people, people told him to, uh, to save his money. Uh, people told him to continue to develop skills after college and to network with people in the fields that you're interested in. If I could sum it up, basically what they said was, um, keep calling your mother and <laughs> keep calling your mother and, uh, and take a long view of the life that you're in, in, entering into, uh, that there will be ups and downs, but take a long view. Um, think as much about your future as you do about your present. And on the face of it, I think we would all agree that that was probably good advice for him, right? I mean, in a lot of ways, we feel like a life is only as good or valuable as the future that it's creating. Uh, Case in point, uh, the status of a retirement account has a profound ability to affect the the stability that we we feel today. And I say all that to say this. Ruth has found something of a life. She's experienced blessings that constitute something of a life amongst God's people. But we couldn't look at chapter 2 and say that she's really found a future there. She's found refuge. But has she found rest? And that's what we're looking at. That's what brings us to chapter 3. Read with me here. This is the word of the Lord. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. 
And at midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And she replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, uh, thank you for your word that's given to us. Thank you for this story. I pray that you would help us to lean into it, to hear from it, to discern your character, your love, and your visions for us, what you have for us. I pray that you would edify us and convict us and orient us toward you. And I pray, Father, that you would help me, that you would give me the peace that you're calling me to and help me to love these people well, to serve you and honor you by the things that I say this morning. I pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 1, Naomi says to Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? think in a line, Naomi just expressed a heart's desire that would have resonated really powerfully with Ruth. In a lot of ways, the pursuit of rest is what this whole story has been about since chapter one. That Elimelech and Naomi left Israel to go to Moab because they were pursuing rest. And Naomi encouraged Ruth to return to her home, to, to her people, that she might find rest there. And when Naomi and Ruth made their way Back to Bethlehem in Israel, they were looking for rest. And if this desire for rest resonated with Ruth, I think in a lot of ways it resonates with us, doesn't it? Like I would say, I hear the desire for rest echoing deeply in the conversations that I have with people most days. The question for us is not do we desire rest, it's where do we go to find it? What does it look like? How do we get it? This passage is all about pursuing rest for Ruth. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to break it up into three different points. I see pursuing, or sorry, I see Naomi's vision for Ruth's rest. I see Ruth pursuing rest. And then I see Ruth waiting for rest. So that's the way we're going to talk about it. A vision for rest, pursuing rest, 
and then waiting for rest. All right, first, the vision for rest. What we see right out of the gate is that Naomi has a plan for Ruth's life. She is envisioning her future rest. And I think what we see in her vision for, for Ruth's rest is an opportunity for rest for someone she loves. First, the opportunity comes in the name of the man Boaz. And we know a couple things about Boaz. Uh, we know that he is a candidate to possibly serve as a kinsman redeemer for Ruth. And we talked about this some last week. But what that is was a practice instituted by God, whereas men with means and a family could care for widows whose husbands have died. It was one of the ways that they took care of the vulnerable in their midst. It was one of the ways that they would secure generational property and keep it within the family lines. And that was a possible way that Boaz could could care for Ruth, was to be her kinsman redeemer. And then the other thing that we know about this opportunity is that Boaz was a worthy man. In fact, that's what he's described in chapter 2. And what that means simply is that he was a man uh, with some combination of character and status. And he was deeply respected by the town people there. So that's the opportunity that, that, that Naomi is seeing for Ruth's sake. It also helps us to understand how Ruth, sorry, how Naomi defines rest. What is she thinking of as she talks about this future rest? Well, this, this, uh, this rest is understood multiple times in this book and really in various places throughout the Bible as, uh, as um, the security of, and stability of belonging in a place with good work to do amongst a family, working toward a common life together. That's the picture of rest that's often held out for us in God's word. Uh, it's not an individual goal for ourselves, like I need to just get away or I need to sleep. Really what rest is, is the picture of the gathering together of, of God's people in a family and working well together. And it's interesting to me, the places where we most experience unrest are on those two places, right? Often within our families and often in some way the, the, our relationship to our work. And the, the vision of rest is a redemption, is, re, is God's redemption working it out in those two key places in our lives. And so that's the opportunity for rest, but she's also imagining it for somebody she loves. And I bring this up because I think we're witnessing a serious transition in Naomi's character at this point. And you remember in the beginning, in chapter one, Naomi was embittered. She was hardened by her loss. And she said, she said, call me Mara, for I am empty or bitter. And what we see, and, and, and I see no rebuke in this text, for her bitterness. And in chapter 2, we see that, that, uh, that Ruth goes out in the fields to glean while, uh, while Naomi remains home. But actually, what we're seeing now is that she's hopeful for something good. And, we see, and, and instead of remaining idle, what we see is her actually working something out on Naomi's behalf. I think what we see is her heart is softening here. Because it's, it's a tender heart that, that imagines something good for somebody that she loves. And what I want you to see here, as we witness the softening of Naomi's heart, is that we can literally take a, to have a glimpse for the tender heart of God that envisions our rest too. Would it surprise you to hear 
that one of the most profound promises of God that he makes for his people is a future rest for them? Often, often, we think about, um, often we think about rest and we think it is something that, that we need because the fall exists and sin is in the world and it's a way of contending with our brokenness. And there is something to that. But actually, God created the world in six days and he rested on the seventh. And then he established that rhythm of work and rest for Adam and Eve when they were serving in the garden. And then one of the, the, the visions that God held out for his people that sustained Israel when they were in the wilderness years was the rest that he was promising them when he would one day bring them into the promised land, that that was a place of rest for them. And when we move into the, to the, to the, uh, to the New Testament, we see in Hebrews a vision for rest, an even greater rest. That is the way the author of Hebrews describes heaven to God's people. That it is an even greater rest. And that helps us make sense of Jesus' words when he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. He says, I will give you what? He says, I will give you rest. And this is interesting to me. Because I think I can make the assumption based on just about everybody I interact with. And as I examine my own life is that many of us are deeply troubled by the lack of rest in our own lives. In fact, many of us, I think, feel as if we are moving at a pace that is unsustainable. And this might not be true of you, but I I could promise you that it's probably true of somebody near to you. And there, there could be all kinds of things that compel us to a state of restlessness, but it is something that many of us have in common. And I think it's also safe to say that a prolonged state of restlessness has this deteriorating effect on us, body and soul. And so if this is you, here's what I want you to understand. That the desire for rest is not inherently selfish. It is not laziness. It is actually deeply human. And it reflects one of God's chief desires for his people. That he desires your rest. And so, so what we see in Naomi's vision for rest is, is a picture of God's vision for his people's rest. And it's incredibly wonderful. And then what do we see? We see, we see Naomi, or Ruth given permission to pursue rest for herself by Naomi. And if I could, character, if I could use one word to characterize Naomi, or Ruth's pursuit of rest, it would probably be bold, right? It begins with a bold plan. Right? What was the plan that Naomi suggests? It's like she's, I mean, it's incredibly forward, isn't it? Wait until Boaz has a full belly and his heart is merry, and then he goes to sleep. And then go down, sneak down there so nobody can see you, uncover his feet, and lay down at his feet. And then what? Oh, no, don't worry about then what? He'll tell you what to do. I remember hearing somebody read the story out loud and then said, well, that's. That's one way to make things happen. That's incredibly bold. That is a bold plan. And it requires bold trust on Ruth's part. We first see bold trust where, where uh, in verse 5, where she, she doesn't ask any questions. She just says, all that you say I will do. And then off she goes, right? And it also requires bold trust in Boaz, doesn't it? 
Because, I mean, last week we looked at how vulnerable Ruth might have been alone in the middle of the day in the fields as a young woman. This is vulnerability. And the only way she can do this is if she has some trust in Boaz's character, right? And just as an aside, I've read a number of different interpretations of just what's going on here. And, And... And most interpretations I see don't believe that there's anything more going on uh, with Ruth than simply an invitation for a future together, an invitation to love. That if there's anything more than that, you're probably reading something into the text. And and a great, I think, the most likely explanation for why she would uncover his feet is simply because it would wake him up in the the cool air as, as the night proceeded, would wake him up and stir, like, it wouldn't be good for her if he just went on sleeping through the night, right? So they need to have a nighttime conversation. But that's bold trust, is what I want you to see. And as this comes together, uh, and, and the time comes for them to have a conversation, you see Ruth make a bold proposal. Look at, uh, look at verse 9. What does she say? She says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, in case you might have missed that, that's a marriage proposal. She's, she's asking him to marry her. Uh, and, and she's doing it using some of the same words that Boaz articulated to her in a conversation the previous day when they were in the fields together. There, Boaz said to her, a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And now she's saying, Spring, spread your wings over me that I might find refuge in that place. Now that's bold. I'll tell you why. Because she's using his own words as an argument for how she should receive this kindness. One author put it this way. I thought this was really helpful. She is challenging him to translate his pious words into action by being the means by which he pronounced blessing on her would be fulfilled. It's pretty bold, isn't it? Now, I think boldness can take many forms. I think there can be a way that boldness can look kind of ugly, right? It can be really all about your own ego or your competencies. But there's also, I think, a humble way that boldness expresses itself You simply take initiative and risk seeking something good. And I think that's what we're seeing here in Ruth in this passage. It's incredibly beautiful. She's not manipulating him. She's not bargaining with him. She is simply taking the initiative to Boaz and laying this opportunity at his feet. Literally at his feet. And everything about her future rests and how Boaz would respond to her. Let me just ask you this question at this point. Let me just stop and ask you this. How do you feel about this? How do you feel about this kind of forwardness out of Ruth? How do you feel about this kind of nighttime conversation that they have with each other? I imagine the two of them whispering with each other. During the harvest, the workers and the landowner would sleep with the grain that was winnowed as a way of guarding it. So they certainly wouldn't be far from other workers who were also sleeping. Can you imagine all of this? How do you feel about something like this? 
Ruth is boldly pursuing Boaz, and she is breaking all kinds of social principles in order to do it. And I think at a minimum, the initiative that Ruth is taking here is teaching us something important about the freedom that we're invited into as we pursue the good and God-honoring things around us. That, that Ruth's, Ruth's movement toward Boaz in her pursuit of marriage to him is actually honored in this story. It's actually held up as something that, that, that is good. It's not rebuked at all. And we see also that Boaz honors her, doesn't it? And what we see in the way that Boaz honors her and the way that he responds to her actually gives her something significant that sustains her while she waits for this rest. Look at this. It appears the only thing that Boaz, that's standing b- between Boaz and Ruth was the law. It's almost as if Boaz had considered this already because he immediately says to her, there's another candidate for this kinsman redeemer that's closer than I. And all that that means is simply there's another relative in the line that's closer to Ruth than he is. And it's his prerogative to turn down the option to be her kinsman redeemer. He could accept that option, this other person. We don't know who he is yet. Or, or he could deny it, and then, the, the, then uh, Boaz could serve as his candidate. And so the only thing that's between the two of them is this law, and that has to be dealt with. Um, and and uh, while he goes to investigate this, what does she have to do? She has to wait. But she, wa- she doesn't wait empty-handed, does she? She waits with gratitude, He said, uh, you have made this last kindness greater than the first. Her first kindness was the way that she treated, the way that Ruth treated Naomi. And he says, you're even being kinder to me than you were to Naomi, not going after younger men, whether rich or poor. And I want to stop right there and just say real quick that that points to something really wonderful about the relationship that they have with each other. Like he is almost incredible. Like we know Ruth is grateful for Boaz. Uh, but Boaz is incredulous that Ruth would have eyes for him in this way. In fact, in some ways, there's this mutual love that we see between the two of them that's really beautiful to see. Like they almost feel like they're unworthy of each other. This, This is not the story of this solitary older man extending himself for the sake of a young vulnerable woman. This is a picture of two people that are matched up character-wise, and are really, really grateful for each other's presence in their lives. This is a picture of mutual love. And so Ruth has this idea of, uh, of Boaz's gratitude for her before he leaves her to wait. But she also waits with honor. I mean, Boaz is so honoring to her in this passage. He doesn't take advantage of her. He actually keeps the nighttime meeting that they had with each other a secret. He won't allow it to be a point of gossip that would disparage her in the town. He protects her worth. Uh, and one person put it this way. He's like, like, like an honorable love, uh, refusing to enjoy the pleasures until the covenant of marriage was sealed. Boaz withheld himself from Ruth because he actually moved away from her, giving her the noble gift of his absence until he could be with her without dishonor. And so he honors her. She has this honor that he gives to her. And then finally, she waits with a promise. This is a solemn vow that he took. He said, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. As the Lord lives, so I will redeem you. 
You will have your redemption either through this person and if he doesn't, I absolutely will. And so she has this promise and he backs it up with a sign that confirms the pledge that he made. It's kind of like an engagement ring is the sign of a commitment that's been made that anticipates a future marriage because he loads her up with barley. And that sign would have been significant because six measures of barley, we don't know exactly how much that was, but it was probably, uh, she probably carried it it with um, what what appeared to be a shawl or something that, that women would, working women in the fields would use to hold their babies. Now this was possibly the sign of the future fulfillment of a promise. So she waits, but she waits with a promise. But there's one problem, isn't it? I don't know anybody that really enjoys waiting for something. I mean, waiting is no fun, is it? Even if it's something good. But would it surprise you to hear that waiting is one of the primary postures of God's people through, through the Bible? In fact, Jesus often spoke of a a time when we would be waiting for him. He predicted it before the disciples. It's doubtful they really understood all that he was talking about. But he once said to his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. In my father's house are many rooms where I am going to prepare a place for you. And like he did so often in his ministry, in that passage, what he's actually doing is comparing his love for his people with the love that exists within marriage. Get this, listen, when a first century Jewish man fell in love with a woman, this is the way it would work. He would go to her father's house where she presumably was living. He would go to the father's house and he would negotiate, I guess what we would call a bride price. Um, And he would confess his, his love for her, his commitment for her, and he would, he, would, um, he would pay something. And then when he left, they would be considered engaged. In fact, the community would see them as exclusively bound to each other. This morning I was talking about it with Matt, and Matt made the mention that, um, that at that point, after this engagement was formed, if you wanted to break the engagement, it was tantamount to a divorce. And so they're exclusively bound to each other at that point, but then they won't see each other for a year. He goes back to his father's home, and he has one, she waits for him, but he has one job to do during that time. It's to what? It's to prepare a place for them to live together. It's to prepare a place for them to enter into a future rest together. It would be a home, most likely an apartment built onto the side of his father's house. And so she is waiting for something good. But what sustains her while she waits for his groom to come back after a year has passed? By remembering the commitment that he made. By remembering the price that he paid for her. By remembering the promises that he's articulated for her. And remembering that he is right now at work preparing a place for her. Let me just close by telling you this. That is exactly what Jesus is doing for you now. That if you look to Jesus with faith, then you are joining the posture of waiting that the saints have embraced through the ages. And we wait 
what sustains us while we wait? By remembering the commitments that he's made for you. By remembering the price that he has paid for you. By remembering the promises that he has left you with. And by remembering that he is right now preparing a place for you. So let me ask you the question one more time. And this desire for rest, battling the restlessness of our hearts and and of our lives, what's sustaining you while you wait for your groom? Let me pray. Jesus, we know that you are hard at work right now, that you are renewing all things, that you are praying for us, that you are even interceding for us, that you are protecting us. Would you sustain us while we wait for you? And would you help us to settle for nothing less than the rest that you have promised for us? I pray that for all of us in this room. I ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.